Star 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Boogie Jab and Rap is life where I'm from. Where I'm from? Ahmad play with Izzy where I'm from. Where I'm from? It be like run your coat black. Jupiter keeps a fat beats by the pack where I'm from. Nappy hair is life. We be reading marks where I'm from. The kids be rocking clocks where I'm from. You turn around your cap, you talk over a beat. And dick some sounds booming out of Jeep where I'm from. Cocoon tied to you, so when units hundred proof. You want some beef, they will cut you some where I'm from. The beats is infinite where I'm from. Voodoo at Shubanine, gangster lean where I'm from. I'm interplanetary, my insect movements vary. It's kinky if it's hair. G, where I'm from? The fire hoses blow, it's purple when it's snow. I do a hit and go, split. It's hip, what's hip? When hip is just the norm. Cause planets pledge allegiance to the funk in all its forms. The kinks, the dance, the prints on all the shirts. My grandmother told my mother it's Africa at work. On vibes, we freak, them universal beats. You find it at the spot, you hear the ends of every week. We twist, exist, to spin the maddest hits. Up here, funk is our neighbor, so we paid her a visit. The lip we sit can house the nine zips. For rock, we can't do nothing. But it's we come equipped. Off disc, off tape, rap blast until from eight. The really truly fat, the fly on the flip. Coco gotta know how planets gotta roll. Speak the mega cool, get funky as a goal. It's calm, relax. We're only some new jacks that acts on the funk, but don't play the role. Where you from? Wicked dick plans got team. Where I'm from? Where I'm from? It's Clarence 13. Where I'm from? Where I'm from? Brothers took the beats and got fly. Why? That's most ass by 85. Where I'm from? In the funk, you get dead. Projects, tenements, pyramids. Where I'm from, we're living off that boom, boom, crack. It's that hip hop, rockers, jazz when I max. Peace be the greeting of the insect tribe. Pestilent forces can't catch the vibe. We live to love and we love to rock mics. We speak in ghetto tongue, cause ghetto's the life. Food for thought, so get a buffet plate. The lyrics are so fat, you might gain weight. So just watch me step alone into the sunset. Left foot, right foot, one, two, mic check. Brewing funk inside my soul kitchen. So pull up a chair, here's a bit, have a listen. A hard hit intervene. Damn, I know you're Yeah, cause doodle ain't having it. And butterfly knew it. Where you from? Stretch for mad blocks. We can get a kick without no breath. Feeling funky beats go straight to the head. Fall into a club, dig on what we love. It be past six before we reach bed. But a fix of relics, we say those are fat. Doodle making silk, the quad, where it's at. We knew the step was set for rap to take a step. So we treat our clips just like busting caps. Whip it till dawn, kick it till dawn. Hip hop is a fix or else we be gone. People thought they canned it. Rap is not by bandits. Diggable plan has got it. to inclusionism is sunday i'm your host james felton keith it is 5:35 in the p.m and we would like to welcome uh our guest this week uh professor of law from fordham university olivier sylvain um wow a few weeks ago we met with uh a colleague of his named sheila foster to talk about uh a variety of things uh, mainly what she calls the co-city, what she calls the commons. Um, I don't want to give her way too much credit if that's stuff that's, that you all co She deserves all the credit. Okay, she, she, she deserves it. All right, okay. Wow, maybe I shouldn't have said it like that. She may hear this. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so first off, um, 
Olivier, thank you, thank you for coming down and joining us. Or did you come that far down? Where do you Where do you live? I live in Harlem. Are you um, in Harlem? So I, yeah, just jumped into a taxi. I shouldn't admit that. I could have walked here, but the rain no, made, yeah, okay. made things treacherous. So. We can delete that out of the podcast, please. <laughs> do you taxi guy? More I'm than all right. Walk? No, no, I'm okay. I, I bike. <laughs> I I take all kinds of transport. Wait, we're in Harlem. Where what uh, what streets? Is that um, too invasive? It is a little invasive. Um, <laughs> just north of Central Park. Okay, just north of Central Park. And what you travel up to Fordham what daily or a couple of days a week? No, no, I'm I'm there um, pretty regularly. I know there's uh, professors get a bad rap. We just kind of laze around, but but um, but is I, that the rap you all get? I, I think some people do, but, yeah. but at the law school at least we're pretty pretty active. Um, I, I'm I, I I'm responsible for our hiring. Uh, faculty and so that's a oh, busy thing and, I, and and there are always things happening on campus I speak at a lot of events that seems more like a business and operations role it's than, a kind of business operations I mean yeah. I teach and I write yeah but but there's a lot of stuff happening so I'm there I would say if I'm not traveling for work for um, days a week yeah um, I'm always traveling for something some week so I mean like outside the city outside the state to yeah. like recruit people oh no so for scholarship. The, okay. the recruitment stuff happens in very discreet moments. Um, there's, you know, a lot of the academic disciplines in history and I think in economics, they have a very rationalized process for recruiting. Sure. The law school process is pretty rationalized. In October, there's a hiring conference. Sure. And people from all over the country who want to teach in law schools come. They submit their materials. They've already done that. And, sure. And, and so we go to that. So that's, 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 not, that's just one thing that I do to get me out of the law school. I, I've... Mm. I, I get to travel to speak about different things that I write about. So what do you, okay, so now you're taking me off of where I initially thought we would go, but what do you, I guess, let's tumble down that rabbit hole a bit. What, do, what are you writing? What's, what's near, like, what, what is of peak interest right now? Um, I think the things we're going to talk about today, I, don't, yeah. I know that you, I mean, for fear of going down the rabbit hole, I will indulge that question. No, go. So this is so, a nerdy right, show. Right. We have a nerdy name. We have a nerdy charge. We have a, a more folksy cultural show before me. And right after we play a bunch of uh, like, you know, Dominican music and Caribbean music. So we're sort of right in pocket to be nerdy. Everyone just sort of tunes out. Like, I don't know what the hell they're talking about. Okay. I don't even know if I can say hell on here, but yeah, I think you can. I think that's allowed. I think that's allowed. (laughs) The FCC won't come after you. Yeah. Um, So that's part of what I write about the federal communications commission. Really? And there was a time when network neutrality was, was the sort of thing people um, thought a lot about. So I've written about that and I've written about something that I think other people who who are in the room might appreciate something called network equality. Yeah. Which, which, which is another way of framing the network neutrality issues. So I've written about that. I've written about platform um, liability and responsibility. That is the Facebooks of the world. Sure. Um, I was a consultant on a case uh, against Facebook that settled early this year. It's a rare case that settled. Um, you may have seen it. I wrote an op-ed in the Times that appeared that was about Facebook's um, complicit um, engagement in developing categories that violated the Fair Housing Act. Yes. Um, so uh, can you tell us more about that case? I mean, we know. had um, we had Professor Carroll from the New School on a, a few weeks yeah. ago. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, not about Facebook, but about his lawsuit against Cambridge Analytica. Yeah. Uh, I have yeah, way too many friends on, on both sides in that case. It makes me, mm. I guess, look like a dirty old man a bit. But uh, but yeah, so we had Carroll on. But wait, what, I'm not familiar with this case. What? what well, in late 2016, um, ProPublica, um, yeah. um, a you know, online, mainly online, public funded, journalistic, um, nonprofit, data driven yeah. um, investigations that were led by Julia Angwin, who's a Harlem resident, by the way, um, I did rev- not know that. revealed that, that Facebook was generating categories on its ad manager. And many of you may have used the ad manager platform to distribute all kinds of ads for all kinds of things. Sure. But they were creating categories by algorithm that um, identified people uh, according to their ethnic affinity and race and gender and sexual orientation and age. Um, and there's a statute, the Fair Housing Act, that since the 1960s has forbidden the disclosure and advertising of that information. And that's because that information has historically been used um, to the disadvantage of, his, of historically disadvantaged people. So um, uh, Facebook uh, claimed immunity under a statute. Now you want to geek out? I'll say something about this, and this is—I'm happy to go down this road. Sure, um, you're taking us somewhere different, but I like it. We may go this, where some of the other. Folks yeah, in the yeah. This, there's a go. statute called the Communications Decency Act, with it, which which the courts have read as immunizing 
online platforms like YouTube and Facebook from liability for the stuff that their third party users post. Sure. Um, and the, the reason for they created it is because they don't want YouTube to be sued for the things that people post, right? Sure. Um, you want a vibrant internet platform, a vibrant in, in, environment. Um, uh, and I, we can say more about why that immunity was created. But, but Facebook, 20 years later, was invoking that immunity to protect itself from algorithms that were generating um, categories that are unlawful under the law. Mm. And that case didn't reach a, a court opinion because I think Facebook thought, the case, the, the housing case I've been describing, I think Facebook r realized that the, the immunity where it's been protective in the past was not going to be as protective this time. This is my opinion. Mm. They entered a settlement in March um, and uh, that's not the end. Um, it's a $5 million settlement that requires that they do certain things, including f not, not allowing that kind of discrimination. But also HUD, um, under this Ben Carson's HUD, <laughs> uh, actually began its own investigation of Facebook. So Interesting. So that's what I've written about um, more recently. So, okay. So, all right. By invoking Facebook, we in immediately sort of tumbled down the, the data rabbit hole. Yeah. Um, for everyone that's, that's not watching online, we have some some basic income and data advocates and activists also in the room. But before we get to sort of a bunch of other topics, maybe uh, right after the break, I want to talk briefly about or define this, the project that you're doing with, uh, with Silicon Harlem and Sheila. What's it, what's it called? It's Harlem Seek. So um, the National Science Foundation okay. uh, opened up a basically um, a request for proposal um, a couple years ago for scholars who wanted to investigate um, alternative ways of developing smart cities. You okay. know, that's a turn. That, for me, that's a catchy phrase that sure. does more work than it should. Sure, it's like, but yeah. connected communities they is what they called it. Right, exactly. And and what our project proposes, and the, the leading investigator on the project is an engineer out of the University of Arizona, um, Dan Kilper. Hmm. Um, we're, he, along with a couple social scientists at University of Virginia, engineers, uh, computer scientists at University of Virginia, Sheila Foster and I, Sheila when she was at Fordham, I'm still at Fordham, she's now at Georgetown, mm -hmm. we proposed to develop an edge cloud network in collaboration with Silicon Harlem. Okay. Edge cloud network would basically be a low, low cost um, network that allow computing to be done in a in a central location but everybody gets an gets equipment that that gets that allows them to do whatever they were doing would do online um at home sure um with a cheap device and um all the data that transmit that is transmitted from the central location to their um computer is um dedicated to them and the administration of their data uh, so, um, what okay. Sheila has written about, and I think you had her here for a couple, a couple weeks ago. I didn't hear, I should have heard the podcast. I haven't heard it. Oh, we'll I've heard her talk that. a lot yeah. about it. Um, yeah, is, I really only met her hearing her talk and yeah. I just thought we have to talk more. Well, the question is, can data be, can user data be a common pool resource? Um, can there be a centralized location where people mm -hmm. store their data and it's managed by an administrator, mm. but that users in that community can... Um, rely on that central server to um, do all kinds of things online. Sure. Yeah. That, all kinds of things is broad. Everything. <clears throat> everything. Right. Everything. Right. Everything. No. Yeah, I hear you. And when you say, well, yeah, and, and user data is, well, uh, can also mean, yeah, multiple different types of things. But but I get it. So so that is the, the effort. And, and am I correct in understanding that this effort is to... Uh, supply access to people who normally don't have access. So that's that's the whole goal. Right? Yeah, we're in a bit of an internet desert. Yeah, in certain pockets. That's absolutely right. So part of it, part of it is to redress the digital divide. What's been called the digital divide. Um, I, I call it the disparity because because these days people are online. They're using a phone, sure. but you just can't do your homework with a phone. Right. Um, uh, but that's not the only thing. I mean, the engineers on the project are also developing a novel technology that will allow. Uh, a central administrator to administer, to control and administer um, high-quality internet connections mm -hmm. uh, and enable people to use um, um, this server to access the internet and, and everything else available and, and other network computing technologies available. And who, if anyone, would this be regulated by? And when you say it's sort of a central service or a commons-style mm -hmm. service, meaning there's no singular owner 
uh, singular entity. Right. Um, is this something that falls under sort of the, the municipal veil okay. or state? That's it. Or, That's the question for right. us. How do we structure um, computing network mm. that allows its users to be as in control of their data as anyone else's? Sure. Um, and conventionally, we rely on um, Spectrum or Verizon or AT&T in collaboration with municipalities, which give franchises to these entities. Sure. Um, our proposal, as the NSF accepted it, is to engage a variety of stakeholders that are well beyond just those main ones, right? Okay. So municipalities, community board nine and 10 would be involved. Um, oh, nice. A, you know, a broadband provider could be involved, theoretically. Um, um, but the local businesses, the residents, uh, the anchor institutions would also be um, vitally involved in the administration, the governance of the um, network. That means to say they would decide what kinds of applications they want. They would decide whether they could sell their data to someone else. Um, I don't think that's a great idea. Um, um, and I, I, we talked very briefly uh, a little while ago about, about that. We can talk more about it in a second. Sure, yeah, we'll get, um, yeah. but, but your question, who's responsible for administering this, is, is a great question. That's what we're trying to sort out. Ultimately, Sheila and I are, Sheila Foster and I are responsible for developing uh, a governance scheme, a model. Uh, we can call it a contract between yeah, all contract. the members yeah. of, the, of the group. And how far along are you all? And and this that is, is a, we're going to start year three um, soon. Oh, what about the contract? So 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 we're, per the contract yeah. and how people think that they're. I guess let me back up a bit because there are a million questions that come to mind. Is there, uh, is there a way in which certain stakeholders already feel entitled to authorities mm. over the? Uh, administration of this um infrastructure is it's a great question because i mean and it, it, it's a political yeah. it's a politically difficult one everything so is silicon yeah. harlem has been very important to the development of this project because they're an anchor institution that really knows a community and has sure. a brand that people know and trust yeah we love bruce and clayton yeah. and yeah trust is key Sure. Um, and yeah, I so, agree. Yeah. And so I th in Harlem especially, people who are skeptical about people coming in from the outside. Yeah, we don't trust nobody in Harlem. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm in Harlem, but I don't yeah. even trust myself. You know? <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. So, but they trust Silicon Harlem. And so one yeah, might yeah. assume that Silicon Harlem has, uh, should have a primary stake in resolving how some of this is done. Sure. Um, on the other hand, uh, their interests don't necessarily align with those of users who want to do a variety of other things that um, that the, that Silicon Harlem doesn't want to do. So, so can you think of any examples? Or I don't yeah, want to, yeah. I mean, so, well, okay. we're not there yet. We're yeah. not there yet. It's is hypothetical um, because I'm not. You know, we're just going to try to create a mechanism sure. to get all the stakeholders involved. It's too early to say um, uh, what would be. Um, you know, an issue that were, would be tough to resolve. But one thing I might might float is the administration of the network. So you need somebody who actually knows something about the technology. Sure. To administer um, cybersecurity. Yes, yeah, cybersecurity. Right. Uh, yeah. And and users. I don't. You know, I teach information law at Fordham Law School, but you know, I'm not a technologist. Sure. And so you assume that there is somebody who has a bet who's in a better position to make decisions about the administration of data and its security. Um, so that's an example. Well, I think the most interesting thing, being in, so my last industry was cyber insurance. Cyber, I've, I founded a bunch of companies, uh, one in cyber insurance, one in fintech, one in ad tech. Hmm. I, I travel quite a bit talking about cyber <clears throat> security in general. And I think um, from a people infrastructure standpoint, I think one of the biggest uh, pitfalls is we do ass assume that there's some technical hand, some engineer on hand who understands not only how this stuff works, but how it should be administered. I think the, the difficult thing is that uh, while most things that men make are a technology, security is not. Security is a culture, and it's really mm. more of a legal issue than anything else. Mm. I mean, that's why I think engineers and lawyers need to be the ones duking it out to figure out what whatever tomorrow looks like. And I mean that in a good way. Like, there should be a fruitful argument to be had. I, I spend the majority of my time just arguing with lawyers. Um, <laughs> I'm mostly, you know, 
up until recently, until we started you know, running for Congress here, most of my arguments were with Europeans post-GDPR. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I wrote a bunch of early versions, like about 34 articles of, of that before it came to 99 Article Beast uh, that oh, it is today. Oh, I've got to see those. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, they're, they're all out there now. I mean, they're mm-hmm. the ones that talk about the right to... Uh, be forgotten redress and uh, not redress but you used redress earlier which caught me off guard because I'm only used to lawyers saying that but basically uh, (laughs) right the right to uh, be forgotten portability and restrictive processing I want to add to that in the United States uh, around education regress and redress excuse me and outright ownership Um, we can get to that in a little bit Mm -hmm. but uh, I think just because folks understand what tech is (sighs) doesn't necessarily put them in the best position to say how rights should be distributed. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And I like models, not that I've seen any of them, that incentivize sort of a, a hyper-democratic approach, meaning more people are at the table having a say around how resources are distributed in general. But with that comment, the question that comes to mind is, what resources are necessary for this project and who's paying for it? Is it mm-hmm. the city? Mm-hmm. So, um, no. Okay. Um, I mean, the, I think I, it's a complicated answer, but the, sure. the cleanest answer is no. The National Science Foundation is paying okay. for it because we're piloting okay. this endeavor. So it's a big grant. It's so a that's, grant. that's federal. It's a million dollar grant. It's the federal um, government. That's good. Um, it's a federal government. Or for me to know. Right. I'm running for federal office. Yeah. So I'm, I'm always, yeah. I like to invite you all here because I'm looking for solutions to problems. I want to say, well, on this day, Olivier said that. <laughs> and I think we can use it to do X, Y, Z. I'm sort I, of I, hacking so my race. I, I love this point because yeah. the other thing that I've written about is um, federal preemption of local governments and sure. state governments. And, and this is a real issue with regards to uh, telecommunications infrastructure, sure. as you probably know. Um, I do think that the federal government should have a major role in supporting, as a financial matter, yeah. projects like this. Ours is a test bed. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, we're testing out these, possi- these possibilities. We've been convening sessions with Harlem residents at NYCHA, in NYCHA buildings and in Silicon Harlem's catchment. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, but... but so it's it's very local project, but the truth is that this stuff requires substantial funding, right? Yeah. I mean, well, again, especially if we're going to sort of replace the the grand old private infrastructure, um, the, the the regular, you know, telcos. I mean, because is there the sense that, that what's being built here is competitive? with what is already in the market that people can purchase for, like we pay a lot mm-hmm. for 5G in right. my apartment. Yeah. We feel like we absolutely You got 5G? It. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Okay, that's not deployed generally um, in New York. Very. I mean, you might, you might have Fios. Uh, maybe we don't then. You have, I don't know you have Fios maybe. Andy buys um, it, yeah. Um, I sort of don't do my own house stuff. I just yeah. feel like You're I've seen 5G. It says that on... 5G's anyway. coming, 5G's coming for sure. Yeah. Um, what Harlem has been, and your Harlem resident, has yeah. been struggling with is a question of whether Fios is being built out here. Yeah. Um, and that's part of the story I would want to tell about why federal governments are important to ensure that there is wide deployment and that these infrastructures pass, the pass rate for these infrastructures are, are, is good. Yeah. Um, so I'm with you on that. Uh, um, I mean, I will say about um, the, the last piece on the funding part, it's a collaborative project. Sure. We, so we've had some very generous um, partners in Microsoft. Yeah. Um, they've given servers uh, to Silicon Harlem. I shouldn't say that too loudly. No, it's fine. Um, I mean, Microsoft yeah. is a, I yeah. like their CEO. Yeah. Yeah. I, he, <laughs> I talked to uh, Jaron Lanier at Microsoft. Oh. And, oh, you know Jaron Lanier. You know, I know of him. Yeah. I, does he call himself someone who's from Microsoft? Well, yeah, he's a researcher at Microsoft. Okay. So when I think they've about got my, a lot of them. So well, yeah, Kay Crawford, got, right? Yeah, ev- she was there. Everyone's at Microsoft yeah. getting a check. But but General Lanier things. needs props. I don't know him personally. I'm cutting yeah. you off. Oh, go, can go. I just say something? Run. So he wrote something called, I mean, everybody in go here there. might like it. You know this book, You Are Not a Gadget? Yeah, yeah. I love that title. Yeah. 
Um, <laughs> but this is a guy who in the 1980s was one of the creators of virtual reality. No, I know. Yeah, he's the, he's the guy. Yeah. He's the guy. And he's, but he's, he's a progressive, not progressive is not even the right word. He's thinking about he's a philosopher. making technology. You were talking about humanity, making, making tech yeah. human. That's what he's about. We're going to go. <laughs> so you're taking me to a place. I, I wasn't, <clears throat> I'm losing my voice because I've been yapping all day since about 12 o'clock. But um, I guess that's really every day that I get in here. My voice is almost <laughs> gone. But um, no, I was just, I only brought them up because last time we talked was out in Berkeley, but uh, a few months ago. But they have this active uh, project going on. They're trying to measure the ripple effects of influence. Like they're trying to see data mm. move mm. entity by entity, like domain by domain. And mm. I get that that sounds abstract to the crowd listening in, but just think of, you know, any time that you have an interaction in the world, whether you are deliberately clocking it or not, these folks are endeavoring to understand how you influence a culture, how you influence a community. Mm -hmm. And not that they want to put a number on that, like a, like a dollar sign, but um, I do like to think, and I think where he and I sort of jazz together, so we look at data as the new matter, the new everything. So mm -hmm. we will put a data point on all moving particles, and the ones that we haven't yet or can't, we will make assumptions about those particles. So when I'm using the term data, you know, I try to use it per legal context to, to say I have evidence of something. And so it's something that I want to argue about. It's a tangible good. But more broadly, when I'm talking about data, I'm really using it as an opportunity to quantify sort of whatever our spiritual connections are or whatever they aren't. I'm sort of what you would call the anti-spiritual guy. I want to quantify everything. Okay. I mean, I like the I like what spirituality means, but I studied physics uh, when mm -hmm. I was a kid, and so as I understand all things to be physical and exist, mm -hmm. I just want to see all those things. I'm not right. necessarily looking for abstraction of, of any sort anywhere. So, um, just so I understand what this Microsoft project is about, they're visualizing data flows. Not even just visualizing, they're looking first to see like what it is and where it exists. Like they want to see like and and how many places can we quantify that people are making a voluntary or involuntary transactions. Okay. Um, and so it's about measuring the ripple effects of those transactions. I guess um, okay. to be even more uh, philosophical. I'm just looking at the clock right here really quick um, mm. as we come up on the hour. Um, it's like the idea that, uh, so I think we've spent the past 500 years with engineers looking at friction and looking at matter. They're really looking at energy. So you have mechanical, electrical, and, and chemical engineers only, and anyone else who calls themselves an engineer is probably not. And they're looking at um, energy happen as things move. And these folks are looking at, these are mostly economists that Jaren's interacting with, people like uh, Glenn Weil, uh, uh, who's a friend, who's on our advisory board for our uh, congressional campaign. They're looking at value like that of energy. It cannot be created or destroyed, mm -hmm. but it can change form, right? And so if we start deploying economists to look at the movement of data, in the way that we've deployed engineers to look at the movement of matter. And per that friction of matter, we see energy transpire. Then they're looking at the movement of data to see value transpire, and they're trying to figure out who is supposed to have what. Mm -hmm. um, and if it is this sort of communal effect, then who is supposed to have access to what in the commons? Now, with that said, we got to take a quick break. And... When we come back from the break, we can um, tumble further down the rabbit hole of um, who legally gets to own what. Because I think that's the most fun conversation, mm -hmm. period. Okay. But I'm digging this whole thing. You're listening to WHCR 90.3 FM, The Voice of Harlem. Uh -huh. Yo, and Jimmy... Jimmy with the dugouts, right? <laughs> yeah. Get 
chores, float up to the stars. Planets is a spot about six blocks east of Mars. Air sold kicks and crushed velvet hats. Hanging off the ad with the beautiful snaps. Riding the crest with the blessed giver, yes. Planets kinda funky as if you hadn't guessed. Placebo's getting blocked, funky joints get rocked. Job is not found, we flop from the flesh. Whether Jeep or lack, peek it as you bend it and float to them raps. Butterflies, planets with a jam, eight tracks. From the naughty tops with the twist and plaits. Look beneath my hat, find the brains that hit ya. Metro quite equipped. Knows of all the funk that was laid in seven zips. Funk is fat, homie, homie, don't you know me? Cool is back, give some skin, lay it on me. Groovy, you could call it. Hip, yeah, you could call we. Vicky, sticky fingers stuck us, loop junkies. If you digging rhyme, then you digging rap. Jimmy's digging this, and we be digging that. Yeah. Yo, the Black Panthers would have had their own cartoon, right? I know an A-track Walkman's right. <laughs> True. The Jackson 5 would have had dreads. Where my man Tito would look fly, right? <laughs> and Jimmy would have done Dick's plans for real. Planets busting out of this L7 square. Check out the wares, check out the hairs. Sweet back chills with Shad on the ad. Jimmy's digging cats and that's just the ad. Where they find the stuff to? Freaking like a wizard. Slick just like a lizard. Really, where the is it? It's just the logic from how we rocks it. Pop shock picks it up and drops it. We, the synthesis of then and now melts. Channel to the masses by a DJ and some felts. Long haired hippies, afro blacks. Get together, cross the tracks because when we shows up, rhythm rolls up. Fun cannot be measured while the pleasure grows up. Life ain't what it seems, life is but a dream. Planets freaking havoc is as constant as the rain. Yeah. All right, we're back. Um, we kind of cut that short because I feel like this conversation get a, can get a whole lot more nerdy than it already is. Uh, I feel like we may have annoyed a few people talking about energy and other things. Um, but so also in the studio, we have Diane Pagan, who's always here, um, sort of our best friend at this show. <laughs> we also have uh, Alex Howlett is in town from Boston, who's the host of uh, Boston Basic Income. Am I getting that right? Which is yeah. a, a weekly um, yep. conversation that you all have. Is it a podcast or a radio show or both? Or it's a uh, YouTube live stream. Oh, so, oh, yeah. I, I want to come there and hang out with you all. You all should. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, but your dad has an interesting story per um, Jaron Lanier and what we were talking about earlier. Yeah. So it's funny that you brought up Jaron Lanier because yeah. um, my dad was very involved with virtual reality. Uh, he created the first uh, commercially available head-mounted uh, display, virtual reality head-mounted display in 1989. Before that, he was building them for NASA. Love uh, it. But he developed the optical system behind all of the virtual reality uh, displays that were created in the 90s and the, the 2000s, et cetera. So Jaron Lanier was very much using my dad's optics, which were called the leap optics, uh, for, for his work that he was doing as well. Can I jump in this real quick? Not There's yet. a connection to the Silicon Harlem project, the, the Edge Cloud um, project we're we're I'm working on. Um, there's a uh, there's a, a, a gentleman out of Arizona, University of Arizona, Brian Carter, who's uh, in the digital humanities, which is something I suspect that mm. everyone here. Has that just some sounds fun. In. Yeah, digital yeah, humanities. yeah. Digital humanities, but but what he's but we're one of the things we're doing to test our the infrastructure is relying on um, augmented reality and virtual reality technologies because they are the most sophisticated and require the um, least latency. Uh, so we're trying to develop a high-end sort of product for, for consumers. Um, and I don't know if you know about some of these projects, but they're fascinating, and the, and the equipment we're using is drawn directly from your dad's work. I mean... Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. all... It's all all connected. Yeah. Which is where we were going earlier. It's all connected. <laughs> it's like the singularity. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. Oh, it's that not, word is problematic for me, but yes. It is problematic. Sure. Yeah, and we grew no, up neighbors yeah. uh, with, uh, uh, what's his face, singularity guy. Oh, um, Ray Kurzweil. Ray Kurzweil, yeah. Oh, right. So, <laughs> this is like too much. So this show is not about me. It's about everybody else who's on the show. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, in early 2000s, I was sort of, 
I sort of like wet my beak writing a lot with transhumanists and arguing with the likes of Ray Kurzweil and inventing surf about whether the internet was a, a space or a technology, which I think is it is a space, and I think Vinton is ignorant and wow. has no chops to. Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> I've said that to his face. He's writing DC at Google. Uh, he but, also helped to create TCPIP. Yeah, he did some stuff. So. I mean, everyone had a job at some point and did things. I'm one of those disrespectful millennials. I was born in 81, so <laughs> I have no deference. Um, and uh, as that is the case... <laughs> per- you know, I use him yeah. for... I use him in uh, Vinton Surf. I mean, Vinton Surf, I think... I, I appreciate your, your pushback. Mm. Um, I invoke him in my information law class. We talk about privacy. He mm-hmm. has been known to have said that, that privacy is an anomaly is a historical anomaly that sure. is that it's a creature of the mind. I mean, I'm saying more than I think he says, but that, that it's no, but a creature of that. modernity, that, yes. that individual rights, that stuff that happens in the enlightenment and the creation of individual, of, of human dignity and human rights, that privacy is just a feature of that before there was no such thing because we all looked after each other. There couldn't be. Right. Well, I think so. I agree with him about that. We only had one disagreement and it was about a New York Times article that he wrote saying that the Internet was a technology and people. I was saying that the Internet was a human right and people deserved access mm. to it. And I quantified it or it, I was going to use the word codified, but that's the wrong word. It as a space which you can in, engage in. And, while he can say a lot about the devices with which we use to engage a space, it is different than the space itself. So like a spaceship and a cell phone will allow you to engage a space, but the space itself should not be deliberately lopped off from, from your access. With regards to privacy, I agree. I think that lawyers, no offense, have mm. run amok bring it, bring with it. the term privacy, and they've tried to translate it out of corporate theory, which I think is useful in in some spaces to allow corporations to be able to hold a trade secret, develop something, and then deliver a product Mm -hmm. or service, a good uh, to a consumer. I think that you all's ability, I just have to say you all because you are a lawyer. I'm right here. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Have you leveraged that term and brought it into the political lexicon in uh, totally the wrong way? I think, sure, we are tribal species and um, uh, 200 plus or so thousand years ago, you know, we we all got along and survived because we were all here fending for each other and protecting each other. And uh, even while, you know, uh, individuals should have certain autonomy choice and be able to protect themselves if they're doing, you know, intimate things that they don't want folks to peer into, outright privacy, which is now a thing that people are arguing for, is not a thing the lone man who goes off in the woods alone you know he he so always I think dies. That's a, I think that's a miss so so you won't be surprised to hear that sure. I think you're wrong yeah um I do think that the way you've couched it it's a problem to assume that yeah. um that privacy envisions this person trapped like Thoreau sure, in Walden sure. Pond um, that's not what I think the people thinking about the GDPR, which you invoke. The we use the word the, protection, though, not privacy. Right. Data but, protection. Even though the politics around it is very privacy riddled, that word is used. But the policy word mm. is protection. Data protection. But the conventions we have, the language we have for it is 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 we call it privacy. And it starts as a political issue, I think. Because it's about how we use language, period. Yeah. So, but it's it has meaning. So it it isn't. It's a political. It's a political word. I agree. It's not the same as data protection, which is more precise. That's the word I I, I actually prefer sure. that. But when people say privacy, they know what they mean. You know what people mean. When when Louis Brandeis wrote about the right to privacy at the end of the nineteenth century, mm-hmm. he was talking about cameras taking pictures of society, people in society, and putting them in newspapers without their permission. Sure. Um, he called it privacy. It's data protection, but that's the that's the term we've. But been it was frivolous. It was like it was hip hop, right? Which we've been playing a lot of here, right? It's it's um, it's careless, easy language that that we generally understand, but it, the, at least in my opinion, does not necessarily advance the political discourse. Uh, I was just at uh, the Data Protection World Forum in London a few months ago to give a keynote about. Um, data as a natural resource, and every conversation I had came back to privacy, privacy. And everyone, every vendor that was at this conference pitching their firm to other firms were riddled in, you know, law and consultancy companies really just talking about privacy. And I was because like, that's the word people know. 
Well, right. I think that's a problem. So the, I think the political feat is to pivot how we understand our digital lives, which I do not think are separate from our lives, right. into something bigger than privacy. And that's, well, that's work. I think we just got to an interesting time right now where we can even talk about this on the radio and folks have some context post Cambridge Analytica, post the great hack. I get more emails now about Man, did you see that movie on Netflix? We, you've been talking about this forever, and we didn't know what the hell you were saying. So, so let me put the, this. That's a real world example. Yeah. Um, and I mean, we all experience all the time. Mm -hmm. I, I a moment ago invoked the case against Facebook, but um, Netflix mm -hmm. has been using user data to advertise um, movies to people in different ways based on the data they collect about them. Mm -hmm. So even a movie that doesn't feature up um, African American in a prominent position. Mm -hmm. They're gonna, you're gonna see an advertisement with an African American in that movie mm -hmm. broadcast to you if you're African American. Because you want to see that, yeah. Yeah, and and that's you know, listen, there's nothing actually illegal about that. It's pretty savvy marketing, um, but there's something about that that makes people uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And the thing that makes them uncomfortable is not it. I mean, we can talk about data protection, but it's the idea that you're using someone's private information mm -hmm. to manipulate them into a behavior. Mm, that, now, that's what Jaron talks about a lot. Um, there's another documentary. I can't remember the name of it right now because I feel like I didn't like the documentary because they took a lot of my language and they didn't call me for it. <laughs> and this guy who started this company called Data Coop was all over it. Mm. And I thought it was the worst company. I don't like these data broker companies, right. companies that try to magnify the brokerage that is. Right. And there's a brokerage in every industry. You got data brokers, you got stock brokers, you got insurance brokers. You even have pharmaceutical benefits managers are our DNA brokers, whether people know what those are or not. Yeah. And as that is the case, um, <laughs> I just, uh, I just lost my train of thought actually. Well, anyway, you're talking yeah. about data as a commodity. Yeah. And I yeah, I, mm. I think so. The, the question is uh, for, for the legal minds is how do we build frameworks that still allow people to be in the digital tribe where we know things about them and we can market them and communicate to them in a certain way. Mm -hmm. But they have authority of sorts to protect themselves and or be indemnified if they don't see any sort of fraudulent or flagrant activity where they need to protect themselves. Mm -hmm. Because I guess as the economist engineer in the room, <clears throat> I'm more concerned about indemnification than um, privacy. Mm. And mm. so the reason I get the, the when you say indemnification, I, I know I think I know what that means. It's context and insurance. It means a lot. Yeah. Can you say a little bit more of what you mean? Well, I mean, I mean, it. I use that word deliberately because I'm thinking about this this entity, this commodity, this asset, this labor that is evidence of our personhood. We'll call it personal data mm -hmm. is being used without our knowledge, mostly with our knowledge sometimes. And it is the seminal input to all productivity. And as things are productive and valuable as a result, let's look at productivity as revenues at every institution. I think we have to be indemnified for the use of that in the same way that we would be if we use that word, if it was stolen and used, we have to be indemnified and or made whole well so so i th i think i'm following you and there there are reasons why a lawyer like me would be worried about that mm -hmm. um and and for somebody who's interested in, in data dividends for example this is something that's really interesting can someone can a, can you and i can we sell our data on the market right now we can't right well that's not something that's made available to us mm -hmm. but maybe we would have better control mm -hmm. to invoke something you were saying over the ecosystem, the data ecosystem, if we had a say in what happens to our data on the market. I'm very skeptical. And indemnification or whatever convention you want to use to protect people in the use of data sure. um, raises problems because um, even if I let someone, let's say I let someone have access to my social media account for a day, that's the data I gave them access to. Sure. Let's say I think that's worth $1,000. It's going to have some value to companies in the future that I will have no knowledge of. Sure. Exactly. So it's not the same. It's not, it's a come on, and, and that bears on me. That no, bears I, on who I am and what I do. So when I say indemnification, again, I think the, the biggest transformation that we have to have or that I hope to see <clears throat> in my lifetime with regards to the digital evidence of our personhood, again, I'll call it personal data, mm -hmm. is not necessarily indemnification for a hand-to-hand -hand transaction. 
right? But indemnification mm. for all transactions, because what we do mm. know about, let's, okay. since you brought it up, let's use social media data, for instance, mm -hmm. right? Um, I am not of the group that thinks Facebook needs to give us $5 up front for our data. What I would like, because I know that my data is more valuable in caucus per my tribe, right? right per my degrees of in separation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, um, that it is worth more later. So after it is productive, let's say we do it this way. Let's say, forget social media data for a minute. Let me back up. Let's talk about employee data. Mm -hmm. So I pay you, let's say a retainer for your time. In most places, we call that a wage. You come to the table. I have you and Diane at the table. And I don't think individuals create value. They can't. They contribute it intrinsically. And so mm -hmm. because you come to the table and you provide some input, we all start to look at what sort of creativity can proliferate. Mm -hmm. A legal argument should be able to be had after that about what we are owed from that creativity mm -hmm. that proliferates. And to take this out of just legal context and more into my wheelhouse in economics, I think two things are necessary to define for, at least for our listeners, <clears throat> productivity per economists is just a measure of inputs. First definition. Um, second, um, I lost my train of thought again. What was I talking about? Well, what I, what, what, yeah. can I jump in on this? Um, oh, I mean, wait, wait, wait. wait. Oh, no, ahead, just, I'm sorry. Just go. You remember. Yeah. Sorry. Right. <laughs> it's the beer that I had before I came here. Um, the other thing is that. I don't know uh, what that beer is. <laughs> <laughs> it was just a Carlsberg. Anyway, um, we'll get to that. Um, the other deal is uh, we define data as a, as a non-rivalrous, as a, a non-rival good. And so mm. the fact that we can both consume it at the same time and generate value on it is something that makes it much different than how we normally look at, at products and services or rival goods, like a CD mm -hmm. versus data. Mm -hmm. And data is, is quite different and quite dynamic in that regard, even more so than uh, I've heard a lot of people try to relate it to old case law around electricity and how people... Yeah, I've, I've seen like arguments around, we had Katerina Pistor in here who just wrote an interesting book called The Code of Law. And she talked about the German government in the early 1900s talking about folks stealing, uh, I'm throwing up air quotes for anyone who's not looking, stealing uh, electricity. And judges at that time, again, at the turn of the last century, thought it wasn't possible to steal this intangible mm -hmm. good until it was sort of codified into existence via case law. Okay, yeah. I'm looking to do the same thing via data, not necessarily in legislation as a politician, but I'm trying to write cyber laws right. that provoke adequate litigation that will establish what data is as a non-rival good that people still have an ownership stake to, but it gets back into the essence of who we are. It moves us away from, this is very interesting. This is what people have been talking about. I think since Lawrence Lessig wrote his book, Code, yeah. um, The Laws of Cyberspace 20 years ago, that this isn't about, I mean, it's, some of this is about privacy, but it's about intellectual property. It is. It's about proprietizing data. Sure. Um, and these companies 20 years ago, they knew that they could quantify in the exact way you just put it. Sure. And they could create categories that could be monetized with code so that digital rights management technology software can make it hard, no matter what the law says, sure. for people to use the data later. Yeah, it gets to the point where code is lost. Yeah. Like they, they right. leapfrog whatever yes. old mm -hmm. contracts we've put into place. Right. Um, and so, so anyway, so, so my main worry is that because I'm thinking about more than anything else, and I've been in situations where people go, well, how do you end at any of these ideas? And I was like, I'm just this little poor black kid poor queer black kid from i'm from detroit originally you don't look so poor right now i'm broke what are you talking about i'm just wearing a t-shirt and jeans like these are skinny look anyway um well I, I work hard to sell data companies but uh that's another conversation <laughs> um but no the deal is i i think i, I represent a, a faction that is has had a lot extracted from it mm -hmm. but is not indemnified for that extraction, but I'm happy for what has been extracted to be uh, distributed pervasively to, to transform mm. all culture. I just want to be able to afford to live and eat in that culture. The reason I'm a universal basic income advocate in a blanketed form okay. is because I think this dividend, even while we think about it like a singular thing, is really a group payoff because I'm here. Got it. That's why the man that sleeps on the subway is worth the, the universal basic income, but also Warren Buffett is worth it. We still need to tax him really later. So who's responsible for administering that? Me. I need you to go and vote for me. 
I'm serious. Oh, but 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 so it would be you, but it would be. I mean, just to, no, yeah, just right. to no, walk this to no, no, right. You would be one congressperson. <laughs> right. So, so the, fe- the federal, state, and municipal government, I think, should all come together in uh, in different ways to establish. So, I think the federal government what would be ideal, uh, from my standpoint, is is the largest governments possible, even if there's some super federal government at some point establishes blanket law of the land and then it's up to the lower legs of government to monitor it for forthrightness as it Mm -hmm. um you know as time goes on um i would want to say and this is a bad example so there's potentially some flaws here the same way that the feds pay for nitra to exist and have the city manage it poorly through hpd which we need to sue hpd to the nines they're being sued well, they need to be sued more. Again. I have some friends in Inwood suing them now, but they it needs to be too expensive for them to be negligent. Yeah, but it's not yet. So no, that that means right. that there are not enough lawsuits. Mm-hmm. But but what do you think about? Um, I like this universal. I like that. this idea. I mean, I, I'd love to hear Alex thought on this. But I, I'm I'm having a hard oh. time. The piece I'm having a hard time on. I appreciate that. I very much like this idea that our data is being extracted and used, and we're part of it. And so since we're part of it. Let's just formalize mechanisms to make sure we all get paid. Make sure we can at least make sure that there's no abject poverty. And because then, we're all, all a piece of our data is part of this is part of it. Well, right. Usually when I'm talking to folks about data, they go, oh, Facebook, Amazon. I'm like, no, forget the fangs for a minute. There are 5.3 million companies in the United States that pay taxes. Right. So I can only acknowledge those of those companies. All of them are personal data companies, and they either make decisions about products and services that they distribute based on employee or consumer data. Everything comes back to the individual at the end of the day. And the problem is, per how we understand data right now, is we haven't established it as a nuanced enough thing to where people go, oh, he's just really talking about everything. He's talking about the way capital works and is distributed Mm -hmm. has to be reconstructed altogether. In order for this century and the one after it to work, because what's really happening, and I spent the first 10 years of my career automating away gigs, and I did not think that this conversation would be about what I've been doing. But as we did that work, what we really saw is the only people who got to own value were the people who owned the institutions that owned processes that made better Mm. decisions. Mm -hmm. And what's really happening in the economy right now is there's no shortage of jobs or anything like that. What there's a shortage of are ways to indemnify people for their participation in the economy. Wages aren't enough because we've automated away so well, <clears throat> excuse me, how we distribute value to those jobs. So to formalize it, so this is where I have, this is the piece I don't get. Like, so, so how does that happen? It's the companies that are extracting data. Governments are too, as you said, sure. but it's companies that are doing it. They're always at the so, back one. The for-profits are. So do you oh, mind if I jump else. in here? Yeah. I think it's a little bit problematic to combine these issues with data with basic income. Mm-hmm. Because I think, I think Olivier is far more of an expert on all of the nuances of, of data and all of the problems that kind of come up there. And I think, uh, James, you're certainly right that, you know, a lot of companies are getting rich and, you know, society as a whole is benefiting from, you know, being able to analyze and collect data from all kinds of different people, that kind of thing. But when we think about basic income, we can ask the question, what is it that makes it possible to give money to people? in in our economy. Uh, And the answer always has to come down to, well, you can't give money to people uh, unless there's something for them to buy with the money. Um, so if, if people are spending more uh, money than there are goods and services to, to, for the economy to produce for them, then you're going to have inflation or something like that. So there has to be room to give people the money. And regardless of anything, any judgment you make about the value contribution of people's data or something like that, the amount of money you can give people is determined by the, the productive capacity of the economy. It's not determined by any kind of rationalization about data. And I would say the same thing about mm-hmm. the labor market too. Like the labor market is a market for getting people to do things uh, that they wouldn't ordinarily do with their time. So by default, we kind of, uh, we spend our time in ways that are productive and useful to ourselves. Uh, We spend the time, we spend our time in the ways uh, we want to spend time. So the labor market is a market for if you want people to do something different, you pay them to do that. So the wage is an incentive to do that. There's no like law of economics or something (laughs) that says wages will somehow automatically provide consumers with enough income to activate the economy's full productive capacity. There is a view that, and I think, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, there is a view that, that, and I I think this is what James was saying, that we are engaged in labor whenever we are in, 
in, engaged in any transaction in the world. All friction is labor, is what I'm saying. That's what I mean by data is labor. But, but to your point about incentivizing them, I would say this. There is as much quantifiable value in the economy as there are people. And so there is as much labor capacity as well. Now, labor has to always catch up to what value exists. This is more of a physiological and philosophical POV, but it's one that I hold, and we are nowhere near that point. What I want to do is, as we reach our sort of productive zenith, is make sure that the way we distribute the value that comes from our productivity is equitably and ethically. And right now, it's not. And it's not necessarily to incentivize just more productivity or more labor. It's really to, to, to back the idea that you should not have to earn the right to live. The reason that data is important here is it helps us solve a bunch of arguments that we couldn't have had previously. Because while I agree with every basic income activist that has ever existed about why we need it, they could never win an argument against a capitalist or we would have already had it. And so we've been losing. And I am a bully who likes winning at my core. I don't do that losing stuff. And so I want to win an argument. And so I've, I've sort of been working the past 20 years to figure out how we win this argument. But I hear you. Yeah. I agree with you. <clears throat> I'm also working on, uh, on how to win this argument. And I think an important question we can ask is, why do we value people? Do we value people because of the work that they do and the contribution that they make? Is, is that why we should you know, reward them? Or do we value people because they're people? Certainly the latter. Yeah, the but latter, have, right? But the problem is we have to now make an argument. So I think the interesting opportunity that we have here, and really what inclusionism is about, is it's really three, three simple principles that sit on top of each other. It is the idea that you have an intrinsic value first. It is the idea that you only derive that value from interactions with each other. And I can prove that per the transaction of data that we've been talking about earlier. It, it plays on the analogy that value is like that of energy. It cannot be created or destroyed, but can change form. One second. And the, the third piece is that we are all entitled to some equity in the value that proliferates from those interactions. So th I think we're in a rare time in this century to pair a moral argument like that, that I hope replaces the idea that all men are created equal, and we can tie it to an economic and distribution argument. As a mechanical engineer, I'm trying to solve a distribution problem of value here, mainly because I'm trying to value myself, because I think I'm, I'm pretty fly, and no one gives me enough credit for it. <laughs> but James, what, but some people have, have access to more data. Sure. They produce more data. And that's only a function of historical forces. Well, that's why we that's um, that why we don't make it to what their value is. No, you're right. I think that's why we cannot make this about data volumes per se. Data is just a care to say I have evidence that we've been interacting, and inputs. Excuse me, that we've been interacting in a productive process, and to say I think we need to distribute it per what Alex is saying, um, because you have an intrinsic value, because you are a person. Mm -hmm. We want to distribute you your piece. I think the political work that will, that will succeed us and succeed this time is we will probably always be arguing to the guy who has a little bit more or the gal who has a little bit more about how to pull some of that more mm -hmm. back because they've run amok. We're at a new point in time where we've run amok. It happened previously. I think feudalism failed at capitalism mainly because monarchs could not distribute goods well enough. And so they allowed... Some entrepreneurs have come in and build mostly boats, guns, and clothes. There were some interesting stories about the spice trades in there, but... You're not worried about fetishizing the, the trope of data to make an argument that people have been making for a long time? I'm not, mainly because that I think people... So, <laughs> this is going to be harsh. And what we have one minute left. <laughs> I think the moral argument that people have been making about the spiritual good of their neighbors has fallen apart because the layperson who is desperately in need has not realized any real gains from that argument. That's why we see church attendance down um, or any faith group attendance down. Suicide is up. Depression is up. People feel alone and apart from folks because they don't know that they have an intrinsic value. They don't know that they derive it from really interactions with other folks. They don't know that they're entitled to anything. My hat says we owe us because I'm really talking about not that we owe us $1,000 a month, but that we owe us 
enough dignity to acknowledge that everybody else is is good that that we can feel safe around them and so no i don't think those old arguments at least the ones that we've been having from an abrahamic standpoint for the past two thousand years uh will work because people need something more tangible and i think data is that tangible thing um usually we have another host who shows up right about now and we switch the show so we're going to just play some music on our way out unless you all have some some final thoughts i think we can run on a bit if you'd like to run on sure yeah um something about basic income is sure. that a lot of times when people talk about basic income what they're talking about is determining some kind of minimum standard of living sure. and then kind of bringing everybody up to that level and what i say is i talk about something a little bit different which is that why would we ever want to give people less than the full amount that the economy can sustain? So what I advocate for, rather than a kind of a subsistence basic income, is a calibrated basic income, mm. where you, you gradually increase the amount of the basic income until you get um, consumer spending up to the level that allows, allows people to really activate the economy's full sustainable productive capacity. So I think uh, I like in terms it. of the conversation about basic income, I wish... Um, I wish we'd be talking about that a little bit more. I would love for you to come back uh, next time you're, you're in the city. I would, and yeah, and Olivia, though, we were talking more about like land rights, et cetera. This conversation, I think, went left, but in a, at least a really fun way for me. Mm -hmm. um, Alex, I, I agree with you a thousand percent. And I think that the, when we talk about a dividend, what, I'm, I'm, what, are, what we're really talking about, at least for me, and I'm not talking about Andrew Yang and others. I'm talking about James. When sure. I first met Andrew, it was just a, Tell them what I thought I knew about data. Um, an equity stake is a scalable, calibrated sort of contract that incentivizes growth and participation with the economy. And when I say a dividend, I'm talking about something that is after expenses, after tax, that is owed out to normally a shareholder. What I'm essentially talking about doing by uh, classifying data as an asset of sort of, or an entity that an individual owns is I'm saying I'm going to make you an owner in productivity across all of these entities that you interact with. So I think we're saying the same thing. At least I think we're saying the same thing. And per this dividend and or equity stake, I'm trying to ride the wave of productivity per everyone in the economy without leaving any of them out. I'm not interested in giving anyone a check. I used to be, even per my last book, which was titled Personal Data, the People's Asset Class, I railed against UBI because I thought Martin Luther King's version of it was naive because it is welfare. And I'm a product of welfare, and that stuff don't scale. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm still kind of with Olivier that I'm a, I'm a little bit hesitant and skeptical of kind of the data framing of this, but I think pr how you're talking about it, it sounds like we do pretty much agree. I think if we talk about data like Jesus, it'll work out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you need me instead of Yang. But give me six years. All give right. Me six years. We'll work on it. You think the reason, <laughs> so I mean, I don't know how much you want to talk, how much more you want to talk about this. I'd be happy to talk more about Go about ahead. This. I think let's do a few So, a so few um, John Perry Barlow, um, who, um, you know, poet, uh, wrote the Declaration of the Independence of Cyberspace in the 1990s. It was a he was worried about what Congress was going to do with regards to the internet, um, but he he the, I, I've been railing against the ways in which Silicon Valley and many people of what I, what I say fetishize um, network technologies and the language of data, um, and they deploy it in all kinds of settings. I don't think I'm not. I'm not sure that's what's going on here, James, but but it worries me because it distracts us from things that our core human concerns um, that have been true for a long time, mm -hmm. um, equity, fairness, um, process, you talked about process. Um, and, you know, if it's persuasive, if it, get, if it gets the ball rolling as a political matter, great. Um, I have some skepticism, though. I, well, not I know you live in the district. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, but I, I would love to talk about this um, in more detail, and not just with you, but with a lot of folks, because you're absolutely right. I'm, <clears throat> I'm with you. When we first start, like we invoked uh, Ray Kurzweil in the singularity earlier, I'm not, um, without going through too many definitions for the listeners, what you would call a singularitarian, I don't think that we'll reach some sort of nirvana point where things change over. 
Um, what I am trying to do is ensure that we sustain due process and that we have as humans an opportunity to vet the change management, if you will, that comes about. And, you know, I am omni worried about that as well. I am also worried about the potential for robotics to run amok and supersede us. I'm going way beyond some malicious individuals intent. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's what we should be worried most about. And so I think leveraging data to say we've seen our essence exist in a quantifiable state to then bring about some philosophical moral framework about our intrinsic value. Like our intrinsic value has to be acknowledged above all things or things will become more valuable than us, period. And we've seen inklings of that in society right now per materialism and you name it. So I think that the, the real moral work is talking about tech as this man-made thing. I think the only thing that is not technology is culture. So tech, in my opinion, exists in three rigid forms. You have hardware and software. Those are things we can't touch and things we can touch. Let's say sticks and fire. But also every methodology is a technology. So the law is a tech. Language is a tech. Mm -hmm. And you name it. And as we put those together, we sort of exist, at least in my opinion. And I think we have... <laughs> enough empirical evidence to back this up, a technologically deterministic state. So at the point that we created those three things and they compounded onto each other, we have been evolving at an exponential rate ever since. And we will continue to do that. I don't think that we can stop that. And I do think that tech drives culture, but culture is the only thing that is not tech. And if we cannot have enough time to sort of plateau be human and enjoy that, whatever it means, whether it's food or sex or you name it, um, then whatever it meant to be human uh, and in a grand human state is lost anyway. And so what I'm trying to do is value us to hold on to that to ensure that everything that we've created works for us and not against us per some uh, large stakeholder, which is really where we are right now. We have a bunch of really large stakeholders and they're stifling the rest of us. Uh, yeah. Um, I like to say that, that the whole point of the economy is that it exists for the benefit of the people, but it's only going to work correctly if people have the money to spend. Like a lot of times you hear people criticizing, like the economy is only working for the people with the money. They just go but if everyone has money, yeah. now it's working for everyone. So yeah. that's kind of like part of how I think about basic income, that it, that it really aligns the incentives of firms, like the profit motives of firms, sure. with what's best for the consumer. Because now, in order to profit, you have to be uh, providing something that is good for ordinary people. I agree. It's totally a moral... I think basic income is grand because it's a moral issue. And so when, you know, King and other people were making arguments about it, it was a moral issue. Uh, the problem is there's a very real immoral opposition. And so, so we have to have both arguments at the same time, and, um, and that is our reality. I mean, we have to have the wherewithal to lead people who, who don't see any of our potential in the same direction that we're going. And that is, um, that is exhausting, but it is this, the kind of work that we, that we have to do. It's the, it's the only continues. work worth doing. The struggle continues. There you go. There you go. We come here and yap. Um, all right, so with that said, uh, you all made me think about this song. It's uh, Roy Ayers, I Am Your Mind. It's, it's an oldie, but, um, it's a good song. but a goodie. But, but thank you. So you'll both come back. We'll have more fun. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks.